everybody, and welcome back to Opera Offstage. I'm Jesse, And I'm Michelle. And today we have a very exciting interview with Tracy Cox, who is an opera singer and a fat activist. Today we're going to be diving in a little deeper on the topic that we covered on a previous episode, which is fat phobia. And we're going to get a little more in-depth with what we as singers can do and some ways that we can address the ongoing fat phobia in our industry, as well as how we deal with a lot of the fat phobia in the holiday season. But before we jump into all of that, we have a couple of announcements. Yes. So you guys have been loving our Discord, and we're so glad because we have so much fun. If you're not familiar, Discord is a service where you can chat, you can use video, we stream our opera watch parties, and it's all for free. It's a lot of fun. This upcoming Sunday on November 22nd, we will be jumping on Discord for a little virtual Friendsgiving. Um, we're so appreciative of the community surrounding Opera Offstage. We're so thankful to have you guys in our sphere, and we love talking to you and hanging out. So at 5 Pacific and 8 Eastern, we'll be playing Jackbox games, which are little fun interactive party games. It's a lot of fun. It's very inclusive to musicians and non-musicians, so don't be shy. Come on in. Come play some games with us. We'll probably share memes, funny videos, and it'll be just a good time to, you know, feel connected to the young artist community. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, and it's very relaxed. We have a good time. Let me introduce you all to Tracy Cox. Uh, hailed by LA Weekly as a force of nature, soprano and fat politics activist Tracy Cox is a performer and artist whose talent has been recognized by those in the highest echelons of the industry, garnering her a Sullivan Foundation Award, uh, the Birgit Nilsson Prize at Operalia, and the Kirsten Flogstad Award from the George London Foundation. Tracy co-created the popular web series Angry Fat People with Bates Matthew and Chell which takes a lighthearted pop culture approach to serious issues faced by fat performers. She's been interviewed by the New York Times on fat politics and restaurant accessibility and currently has over 14,000 followers on Instagram, where she regularly unpacks fat performance, fashion, and politics. Tracy holds a BA and an MM from UCLA and completed fellowships with LA Opera's Domingo Thornton Young Artist Program, Caramore, Ravinia Steens, Wolf Trap Opera, and the Miami Music Festival Wagner Institute and Music Academy of the West. Tracy, we are so, so excited to have you here with us. You have put out so much amazing content, not only as a singer, but also as a fat activist, and your Instagram is incredible. I mean, we absolutely dug through it when we were doing our Fat Phobia episode, and it was so helpful, as was your interview with LA Opera. Anyway, we're just so excited to have you here. Oh my goodness, thank you so much. I'm honored to be asked, so thank you. You also just have such an impeccable sense of style. Like, truly, really, I was looking through your outfits and I was like, ooh, when I get out of this house. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thank you. This is this is like what my life is now is just a fashion parade in my house for for my cat. Like it's <laughs> but like I can't I don't like having a day go by where I'm not like dressing up. You know, I need that. This is my joy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think. I think it really helps you get your day started to actually just dress up for yourself and just to feel good. Totally. Yeah. My walks with the dog are epic. Yeah. The neighbors. It's all for the neighbors now. <laughs> we love it. Yeah. We need to bring Tracy on for like a little like IG live makeup tutorial because that's what I love your account for. Oh my God. Oh. That'd be so fun. See, that's yes. my account is so weird because there's, it's like, let's do opera. Nope. Let's do a winged eye. Like it, there's no limit to the, the things I want to talk about and do. Yeah. We and your it. recent cooking tutorials. Yeah. I love to cook. Yeah. 
But I mean, I think that's really how opera accounts should be uh, when you're talking about a personal singer's account. Is like it's you. It's you as a person. Oh, I could not. Person. I could not agree more. I, I I get on the soapbox on this topic because I feel like singers get the worst advice around social media, where they're supposed to present this this one kind of sanitized thing. That's like, here's me on a gig here's me at an audition you know and you never get to know the person and that's so strange to me because we're when you're trying to build a following when you're trying to build an audience the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you invite them into who you actually are so yeah i i feel passionately that singers should feel empowered to to share who they are and the things that actually make them happy and excite them yeah yeah but obviously a part of that presence is also as a fat activist, and I want to ask you a little bit about like, we covered kind of a general, the general appearances of fat phobia in classical music, and they are many and varied. But one specific question I really wanted to ask you was, how do we start to deal with some of the roles like Falstaff, where fat bodies are used as like a comedic trope, or they're used as like a representation of indulgence or gluttony? Like, what do we do with roles like that. Right. Well, I mean, I think that obviously there's there's kind of this tradition in opera buffo, like this very Italian kind of trope of old fat men who kind of show up and they're usually the butt of the joke. And so there's a part of that, like I'm not on the train. I'm not one of the people who, who thinks that we should cancel out repertoire that may not uh, completely fit in in a modern context. I'm I'm much more pro giving context to problematic pieces, providing context rather than just kind of producing them as is and, and letting everybody kind of think that that's like a modern thinking. Obviously, it's not. But as far as Falstaff is concerned, I mean, I've I've been in the show several times. I love the music. I think it's a masterpiece. But when it comes down to it, we cannot use fat suits anymore. Like we, that should not be an acceptable practice anymore. And it boggles my mind that it is an acceptable practice, that it is something we see on opera stages everywhere. It really, it is so dehumanizing to fat people. And I can't tell you actually how many baritones have shown up in my DMs wanting to like argue about this, you know, because they they're like, I make my living singing Falstaff and and wearing fat suits. And like, this is this is like a normalized practice. Mm. And they're right, it is a normalized practice. But when you're making your living (laughs) that and that's dependent on, you know, taking jobs away from fat people and dehumanizing an entire group of people, that's not something that I think should continue. Yeah. So that's 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 my soapbox about Falstaff. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense. You should question any time you dress up as a person who <laughs> that doesn't look like you. Right. And consider whether you are being dehumanizing and whether or not that that representation is dehumanizing. Right. Yeah, exactly. Fatness. Fatness is not a costume. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Not a costume piece. Also not surprised that baritones are always in DMs, just oh, stirring yeah. stirring the pot. Yeah. So let's just throw that out yeah, there. <laughs> exactly. They feel very comfortable just jumping into your DMs. Um, but, yeah. you know, exactly. also, it's it's so funny to me because it's like, do you think that there aren't any fat baritones? Are you kidding me? Like, there's, like, there's so many talented fat singers who could be false F, who who aren't cast. And to me, that's that's tragic. That's their talent that we don't get to see. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I also think it speaks to just the inability of opera to innovate and move forward that people do feel like they have to rely on singular roles to fill out their season. Sure. The reality is, is if the industry was really sustaining itself, there wouldn't be people doing the same role every season just to get by. Yeah, exactly. And of course, I can can understand that feeling of wanting security in this very difficult industry. You know, we're all trying to carve out our little niche. And it's like, if I can depend, if I can always get this, like I do the same thing with like Beethoven 9. It's like, well, at least I know I'll get a freaking Beethoven 9, you know. This, I, I, I agree in that I don't think we as artists should be allowing ourselves to be boxed into these little tiny things that this is the only thing I'm allowed to do. So I do it. I think we should all be thinking more expansively. Yeah, 100%. So a lot of our audience is primarily students or, you know, singers and musicians who are very early in their career. And something that we talk about a lot on the podcast is how do we, you know, moving forward, create the industry that we want to see. So for our young audience who are very much in the process of kind of trying to rewrite some of the bad things in our industry, what are some ways that we can kind of make it a better industry when we're not necessarily in control of casting or opera companies, but how can we be a better ally to all body types? I love this question because I think, especially when you're coming up and you are an emerging artist or pre-professional or whatever, you can feel like you don't have any power because you know you, you feel like you are dependent on casting directors, you are dependent on this kind of funnel of, of the industry. And to some extent you are. On the other hand, especially with the the kind of group that we have right now of young singers, more and more we're seeing solidarity among singers in a new way that is so exciting to me. I was in my first Young Artist Program in 2010. That's when I started. So that's just 10 years ago. And when I was in that YAP, there was an incredible amount of body shaming there, it was completely commonplace and normalized for anybody to to stigmatize me for my weight at work. And roles were taken away, like because I didn't lose weight, like all that kind of stuff that should be illegal. And which now is still, it's still normal in young artist programs, frankly. But there has already been a shift. There's been a huge shift, especially when we're talking about the public discourse around this that I really entirely credit to young singers speaking together in many online forums about what is and is not acceptable. And there's so much power in that. I can't even tell you, you know, there was, there was a thing, for instance, the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions. They asked me last year to come on as a consultant to help them rewrite the rules for judges and what judges are allowed to talk about around singers' bodies. And so we explicitly wrote rules together that said, like, you can't talk about somebody's weight. You can't talk about their appearance. You can talk about their body only as it relates to their acting and their connection and their presence. And you know why that happened? That happened literally, I know, because they're afraid that some fat phobic judge somewhere is going to say some crappy thing to a singer and they're going to put it online and then the whole competition is going to get dragged in an unflattering light. And that happened, you know, that's literally because of the attitudes shifting of younger singers and what they won't accept. 
So there's so much power in just like Audre Lorde said, speaking truth to power, you know, silence will not protect you. Every time we articulate this stuff, it makes us more powerful. I, I totally believe that. Definitely. Yeah. And I think in an odd way, that has been kind of the weird blessing of quarantine is we've all been able to take a step back and actually organize and learn how to make demands of our industry because as students and young singers, we are often the primary audience and consumers. And we are also in some ways the gateway to which people who aren't necessarily musicians meet some of this stuff, you know? It's been very exciting for opera off stage to watch non-singers come in and learn about the industry and start to listen to opera, but they're learning about it through us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Absolutely. But it is a very positive time because I think that more people are being vocal. And I think more people who have not been vocal are looking to those who have always been vocal about these types of issues. And it's been a great learning experience. And I think the I think the culture of this upcoming generation of young artists points to a positive future. Absolutely. It points in the right direction. Absolutely. Which, yeah. Yeah. Is is great. I, I mean, I can't even tell you how important it is just that we're talking about this like we're talking about this in a widespread way and it it hasn't the shift hasn't reached the casting director level in a widespread way yet but it will and that's how a systemic change happens is in these kind of waves and through solidarity 100 percent. so do you have any thoughts about how we could better celebrate diverse bodies in classical music kind of while avoiding those issues of you know rebringing up the opera buffo type character or that type of stigma that comes with it besides just like new opera in general <laughs> right i mean like i i think i think frankly that it, it, it's kind of a two-part answer the first would be we need to expand who we're allowing on stage and in what roles we're allowing them to be in so the most common thing that that people like to cast me as is like the governess or the nursemaid or the something like that and casting me as a romantic lead is is out of the question for for a level houses they'll give me a cover for for romantic lead but i'm not going to go on so we need to change what roles fat people are allowed to sing and black people are allowed to sing uh, you know so many different marginalized groups I don't understand exactly why we are casting, why we are casting in these specific categories. It's like, why would it make a difference if Anne Boleyn is cast as a black singer? Like the suspension of disbelief, like you should already be there with us. Like she's singing, you know, like it's, it's not, it's not Anne Boleyn, it's somebody playing Anne Boleyn, right? But sorry, I digress. <laughs> it's so it's, it's that it's changing who's being cast as what. And then it's new opera. It's, you know, I'm about to take part in a project I can tell you about later, but it's going to be the first opera that's ever been produced that explicitly casts a fat woman as the romantic lead, like the first. And it's 2020. It's like that. It's kind of an incredible fact. Right. So right. we need we need more of that. Definitely. Yeah. Something that we talked about in our first episode is I think the counter argument that the very fat phobic counter argument you often hear about like romantic leads and in, in particular is like it's not believable and it's that's just ridiculous <laughs> first and foremost because like already if you're going to, and we bring this up in the first episode if you're going to go watch magic flute like the suspension of disbelief is already insane right but even be beyond that why would it ever be why would you even have to have a level of disbelief to believe that 
fat people fall in love and fat people get married and fat people have sex and like are just normal human beings right like there shouldn't even be a level of of disbelief but then like it's also opera you know what I mean like if anything like you can see anything on the opera stage that's the way it should be right and that's the thing that's the thing that when people say something like that where it's it's not believable they're telling on themselves because they know we know everybody knows that the the average dress size for an American woman is a 16 18 so obviously the majority of American women like fall in love and get married and have kids so it's it's obviously believable that fat people do all those things so what i hear when somebody says that it's not believable is that they just find the idea of fat people being romantic disgusting like it's like the most fat phobic thing you can say is that you don't want to see it yeah it's insane it's just plain wrong yeah yeah factually and and ethically but another big thing i want to talk about and we actually wrote this question out before that CS Music article came out uh, about dress codes. But how are the current standards of dress codes affecting fat singers? Like the expectation of what you should be wearing for auditions and competition? Well, I mean, obviously it's changing a little bit, again, because of the kind of pushback from younger singers in general. But when I, I mean, when I was coming up through through all the programs, like I can't even tell you how many times there was a lady just like that lady in Classical Singer article who was, you know, a, a major donor who was, you know, like the, the person designated to give fashion advice to the singers. It was like that at LA Opera. It was like that at Music Academy. Like, almost every program, there was an elderly donor lady who we were supposed to go shopping with or like she would, you know, kind of look through our clothes and tell us what we should wear. And so that's like the first problem. Not that there aren't stylish elderly women, of course there are, but when the aesthetic of the art form is informed by an age group that's not near the age group in question, it doesn't make sense to me. And and always that aesthetic was informed by fat phobia so the endeavor was always to make yourself look smaller like you know the advice that i got wear black so you blend in with the curtain they can't tell how big you are you know literally like they want me to be a floating head you know spanks and hose and anything that that will be quote-unquote flattering it just it takes away personality it takes away individualism that i think is so important to artists i think even outside of fat phobia a big problem that I have with kind of, you know, audition wear and styling advice that singers get is that it homogenizes us. You know, if you show up at an audition in the same dress that 10 other girls are wearing, how does that, that that's not, that doesn't help you. That, that doesn't, that doesn't help you even have a sense of yourself when you walk into an audition room. Um, so yeah. I'm very much yeah. kind of against those. I'm, I'm hoping that that shift will continue away from these kind of strange classist advice that, that we get. It's always funny because I do hear casting directors all the time give the, the advice like, we want to see who you are when you do this role. We want to see you in auditions. But also, we'd like you to all be wearing three-quarter length sleeves and black dresses that go down to the knee. <laughs> it's like, ah, right. ah, yes, of course. It's so weird. Yeah, yeah. And definitely all the commentary we get as women 
of like the guys just they're like make sure your suit fits and shine your shoes and then they have everything to say about women's bodies and it's like can we not like i feel like we should be past that point like let me wear a jumpsuit if i want to right you know right and even like the the kind of stuff that's like you can't wear patterns or you can't because it's too distracting it's like if you're so easily distracted like you i don't know you need a different job like it's so strange it's so misogynistic yeah got told my my knees were too distracting once it was right (laughs) above my knee dress my i used to tuck my hair behind my ears told me my ears were too distracting and those are all real comments that i got from something i was like to who I have, you know, I have heard that about you. Your ears are very distracting. So I hope, I hope yeah. you can work that out. They are my most prominent feature. <laughs> um, it, it's such a shame because there is so much individuality and there's so many interesting people with interesting styles. And I think, I think that spirit is kind of missing in opera, especially at the young artist level where we're all so quick to absorb the advice of people who have already made it that we... We miss out on the chance to really carve out these really beautiful spaces to create new spaces for opera. I think that's absolutely right. And I think actually that you are are kind of hitting on something that's even bigger about this kind of industry in that there's kind of like this farm system for singers, right? Where where many universities let in too many singers because they want the tuition. And then everybody goes through this funnel where we all are given the same advice and we're told that there's only one kind of path that you follow to be successful as a singer. And so it it just churns out all of these singers who sound similar and who look similar. And it's a complete disservice to them as artists. And I think it's so important for young singers to realize that there's a million different paths and that there's a million different ways to be as an artist, the sooner you can figure that out, the more success you are going to find as an artist. So anyone who's telling you to homogenize, anyone who's telling you you have to follow these steps, I just fundamentally disagree with. And I think that that's detrimental to you as a singer. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you use the funnel method, you know, you're going to get just a, a handful of singers who are willing or maybe kind of sort of fit that box that faculty want to fit um 100% yeah so the, the quarantine has obviously changed the way we've approached the music industry this year but it's also i think a changed a lot of how people have participated in all different types of activism but also quarantine has been uh hard on people in multiple ways and a lot of people have definitely seen their bodies change in any direction how uh, you were talking about this on Instagram the other day, but why is it problematic when traditionally thin people come online to complain about gaining like 15 pounds during quarantine or talk about how they feel about their body during this time? Right. So on the one hand, I have enormous compassion for for anybody who is, you know, hyper focused on their body and distressed by becoming bigger. You know, we live in a society where, you know, the you know, the weight loss industry last year was a $72 billion industry. You know, you get it wow. from, from all sides telling you that not only are you less attractive as you get bigger, you also are going to die because obesity kills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so I have so much compassion for someone who is fixated on their body in that way and is distressed by having been at home and feeling feeling uncomfortable as they may have 
gained some weight during COVID. On the other hand, I, I mean, this is something I talk a lot about, the difference between body positivity and fat liberation. It's really important for us to, to make it clear that those are two different things. Body positivity is about the individual. It's about, you know, feeling okay in your body, which is something that I would venture to say most people endeavor to do. Most people struggle with this, whether it's body dysmorphia or the feelings of, you know, low self-esteem, etc. Um, but fat liberation is about systemic change. Fat liberation is about how fat people have, you know, don't have access to health care, don't have access to employment, don't have access to equal pay, don't have access to housing or travel or even something simple like sitting at a park bench, you know, sitting at a picnic table. We're excluded from so many portions of society. And so fat liberation endeavors to shift those systemic issues. So when somebody comes online and, you know, talks about like the, the 10 pounds that they gained, while I have compassion for that, I also immediately think of like, well, you know what, you have access to the world in such a fundamentally different way than I do. And it's difficult for me when someone like that is centering that issue in, in a kind of tone deaf way that doesn't acknowledge the, that kind of widespread injustice. Yeah. yeah. I think you made a great point on Instagram when you were saying, like, take all that self-focus, all that feeling that you're trying to control and, and really put it towards fat liberation, because fat liberation, at the end of the day, helps everybody. Absolutely. When you focus on this individual, you're not addressing the actual root of the problem, which is the systemic level issues that make us feel this way about our body that keep fat people from getting the kind of health care that they need for keeping people from working at the, at the heart and correct me if I'm wrong but at the heart of a lot of fat phobia is is realistically we always think that it's a self-issue and what it really is is like there's desire for success and love and all these things and all these industries are completely dedicated to making sure you know and you feel like you are going to be locked out of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, when we talk about this idea of the body hierarchy, meaning that if you are in a, a normative body, you are at the top of the hierarchy and you have the most access, you have the most love, etc. But if you are invested in sustaining the body hierarchy you have to remember that you're standing on the shoulders of fatter people they're the ones who are propping you up at the top to to be able to get that access so when you have those fears about losing that access you want to reframe you want to completely reframe it's not about you maintaining your access it's about you contributing to wider access for everyone yeah, 100%. And I think um, what I really liked about your Instagram post was the bit about, you know, like, it's not my job to be the therapist to these people who are complaining and who are in, you know, stereotypical normative bodies to be complaining about gaining 10, 15 pounds. And I think that's so important. We should not be putting any burden on you to comfort us in those types of situations. Right. And it, it's also, I mean, it's, I have kind of, different views about this than than a lot of my kind of fat activist comrades many of them kind of say like i'm not here to talk to you about your self-esteem issues in your normative body like i am just not here to do that 
And I view it a little differently because I really do believe that our freedom is interconnected. So I don't think fat people can be free when people in normative bodies hate themselves in, a, in, an, in an authentic way. I don't think that any of us can be free when, as, as long as that is something that continues. I think I think that is it's it's the reframing of it as a societal issue rather than a personal <laughs> grievance. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that in general, like the increased online activity, the increased focus on like online mediums has helped more people like find and interact with fat liberation? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, I think I mean, one of the reasons I kind of fell in love with Instagram is because it and it, it's a completely flawed platform. Let me make sure and say that. Like if the algorithm is, is <laughs> yes. garbage, which frequently silences marginalized groups. Um, and that's just an issue. When, when cis white men are the ones writing the algorithm, this is what's going to continue to happen. That being said, the idea of this app is, is egalitarian. And it's given me a platform. It's given me license to build a following and have my voice heard in a way that I wasn't able to do in kind of the normalized structures of classical music. So I'm really grateful for that. And yeah, it's so exciting to me to see fat liberation, not just potty positivity, but fat liberation become more and more mainstream. It's wild. And um, I think that it's entirely because, you know, people are they're hungry for knowledge. They get on these apps. I mean, uh, people love to poo-poo, you know, social media is and say that it's evil. And in some ways it is. But the positives are that people get on these apps and they're just, they want to learn. They want to see. They want to grow their connections with other artists. And I think that we are seeing the tangible impact of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think if there's anything this era could use, it's on... It's a lesson on how to use your social media for good, not only for yourself, but for others. Right. Yeah. You know, social media has been very powerful, especially during quarantine. I mean, you're, you're seeing so many wonderful and incredible resources and community groups popping up on Instagram and Facebook and elsewhere, you know, coming out of this resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. You're seeing a lot more mainstream and widespread activism and fat liberation. It's just it's a really great time. There are a lot of positive things happening on social media where I would just encourage everybody to really seek out those sources because you really can learn so much and be exposed to so many new perspectives and resources. Totally. It's like uh, mutual aid is like becoming trendy, which is wild. But when we look, when we study the radical movements of the, the 60s and 70s, mutual aid was like a, a founding principle of the Black Panthers, of the fat liberation movement, of so many groups that that were, were demanding radical change. And that's that's one of the only things that kind of calmed my nerves, you know, last week during the, the election shenanigans was was that like no matter what happened mutual aid is becoming something that is like a widespread thing that people are investing in uh, which i think is amazing as we enter the holiday season both with thanksgiving and with you know whatever you celebrate for the holidays we can all agree that the holiday season revolves around food and gathering, and with it comes negative talk around weight gain, around eating habits, around body image. And this is something that we face every single year. So, Tracy, how would you say, 
How do we call out and educate people on common holiday remarks that are rooted in fat phobia? That's such a good question. I think that it's really important for yourself to establish boundaries, like before you go to these gatherings, to actually literally sit down and write what is and is not acceptable for someone to say to you about you. So is it acceptable for someone to comment on my body, whether or not it's like you've lost weight or you've gained weight or whatever? Is it acceptable for someone to comment on what I'm eating, what I've put on my plate? When you've decided, when you've answered that, then maybe write a script for yourself so that you can stick to the boundaries that you've set. And because when you do this once, it becomes so easy to do it or not so easy, but much easier to do it in in different settings as it arises. But, you know, even somebody because many times this arises in a kind of benign way where someone says, you know, like, oh, you look great. Have you lost weight or whatever? And to set that to stick to that boundary, you can say, thank you so much. I, I don't really talk about my weight with with anybody without you know kind of inviting that but but thanks and beyond that the kind of more insidious things that i find at these holiday gatherings is the person who is still deep in diet culture deep in the ideas of moralizing food you know where you'll be at like the buffet with your aunt you know or whatever and she's like you know, oh, I, I want these potatoes, but I just can't do the carbs. You know, they're so, so bad, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what I find really hard to navigate, you know, because you love your aunt and she's saying that because she's been told this, she's been taught this message for many, many years and hasn't perhaps had the same access to a political education around these issues. So I, I like to very calmly kind of model the behavior that gives them access to kind of liberation, you know, by showing them what I'm eating and saying it's, oh, actually, you know, potatoes aren't bad. Potatoes are just potatoes, you know, you know, something, something like that so that it doesn't have to be fraught. Anyways, last point that I'll make on this is that um, there was just an article in the New York Times by a writer named Aubrey Gordon, who also goes by Your Fat Friend online yeah yeah yeah. we love her (laughs) yeah she's brilliant absolutely brilliant and this article is called it's an opinion article called leave fat kids alone and i just urge you to read this because um, more than anything at these family gatherings kids are being taught messages kids are being sent messages about their bodies that they will internalize for their entire lives so be very careful about what you say in front of kids about your own body, about their bodies. Um, and as much as you can model freedom with food and model freedom, uh, with, with living authentically in your body. Yeah. I always think back to my mom cause my mom was just a really incredible model for loving her body. That's awesome. <laughs> and I, I don't mean to just compliment my mom on this interview, but she had a lot of health problems. Her body changed all the time. She had a double mastectomy later in life from breast cancer. And she's been through so, so much. She's got a three foot long scar down her back from a different incident. And like, never has she stopped just loving herself. Wow. Not when she was bald, not when anything else. And I, I'm so grateful for having that model in my life. 
That's amazing. That's amazing. And yeah. And you know, my mom, who I love so dearly, who now is is in her 70s and she has a progressive disease and even even facing this disease, she still is is so deep in fat phobia. You know, she's a she's a thin elderly woman who when I bring her a sandwich says, "Oh no, no, no. I I can't have mayonnaise." You know, like something like that. And you know, I I have so much compassion for her because this is something that's so ingrained in her. This is this is how she was taught she needed to survive within this system was by maintaining smallness. So as much as I can, I mean, it can be triggering for me to be around my mom because of that. But as much as I can, I try to model this kind of freedom and this kind of behavior. And it is a gift to them. So sometimes you sometimes it's it's hard to have compassion when it triggers your own, you know, battles. But uh, as much as we can, we want to model this behavior to those who haven't had access to to the education. Yeah. And I think, you know, we were talking earlier about addressing people who are in more normative bodies and their complaints. But I do want to say, like, you are an incredibly compassionate person online. And I think you do have the utmost love for the people who are struggling with internalized fat phobia and generational fat phobia and all of these things that affect us um, because it does take time to unlearn and to deal with and reteach. Although I think it was funny, I was going through a bunch of cookbooks from my grandmother this weekend and uh, she has old diet books too, of course. Uh, and it's so funny because, of course, the advice is completely opposite to most of the stuff we'd say today. And in another 20 years, it'll be the complete opposite again. And I think that's a good lesson in not moralizing food is that it's just always going to keep changing. Exactly. <laughs> There's no good, bad. It's just food. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I do love her like 900 page cookbook on all carbs. <laughs> and I will use it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> but yeah. And I think the other big one is, is New Year's. People like to set new goals. And a lot of those goals are sometimes rooted in changing your body or how you look or a, a number on a scale. And I, I think a lot of people think that that's self-improvement, but it's realistically more about like control and changing how, trying to change how other people see you, not always how you see yourself. And so how can we exchange maybe some of those more fat phobic goals and, and change them into something that is more at the root of like what their purpose is, which is like self-love and confidence and success, the things they think that stands for. Right. Yeah, well said. When when we are facing these kind of setting these goals, setting these these resolutions, I think that there's a couple of questions we need to ask ourselves. The first, just like you said, the first is, is this goal going to change my experience in the world and why? If I meet this goal, is it going to change my experience in the world and why? So if the goal is to lose weight and you reach the goal, it's going to change your experience in the world. That's the answer to the first question. The second question is why? Well, because we value thin people over fat people. So if your goal is to perpetuate the body hierarchy, to perpetuate the system of fat phobia, I would say that that is a goal that I would reevaluate. Um, Secondly, I think that we can shift away from setting goals like that when we set goals around behaviors rather than incentives from an unjust system. So there's 
plenty of goals that you can set around, you know, improved health markers and, you know, improved functionality and mobility and, uh, you know, if, if those are your goals. But there's a huge difference between setting a behavior goal of, I'd like to move more because it helps me sleep better than I would like to log an hour at the gym seven days a week so that I can lose X number of pounds. That's just a totally different framework. Um, one hinges on the marginalization of a group of people and the other hinges on you feeling better and, and, and living a, a life that you want. Yeah. Well, and I think there's just so much more joy in that because when I used to do different sports and things, like it's much more fun to see what you can do. Right. And not care. Because the other thing is like not all sports or exercise will change your body in the same way. Right. Yeah. And bodies Wouldn't are... you rather see what you can do? <laughs> bodies are amazing. Like they are so amazing. And we when we give ourselves the room to discover that, like to to like approach our bodies with a sense of discovery rather than setting arbitrary metrics that if we don't meet them by January 28th, you know, we've failed. Don't set yourself up for failure. Like set yourself up for a life of, of discovery and a life of always growing, always figuring out something new. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So Tracy, you have a wealth of resources and information and just like bomb ass content on your page. So tell us, tell our audience, where do we find you? How can we support you? What do you have coming up? Thank you. So I, you can always find me at Sparkle Jams on Instagram. There's a, a couple different resources there that are important. There's the Fatlib resource library that I've created that you can find in my highlights on Instagram. That's an Airtable that um, includes a lot of resources around, you know, research on weight stigma and fat liberation issues. Well, let me quickly second that your Airtable resource is incredible. And if you enjoyed our Issues in Opera fat phobia episode and enjoyed this episode, please, please check out the resources that Tracy has clearly spent a lot of time putting together. Yay. Thank you so much. Oh, and if I may, next weekend, I'm leaving for my first gig in the midst of COVID-19. Yeah. But uh, Victory, Victory Hall Opera has commissioned a world premiere that's called Fat Pig. And uh, it's based on the play by Neil Labute with a libretto by Miriam Gordon Stewart and composed by Matt Bowler. And so a week and a half from now, we're going to be doing the first workshop reading of the of the piece, and it's going to be uh, produced with a full production in 2021. So um, it's the first opera to ever feature a fat woman as a romantic lead. And that's me. So I'm so excited. Um, there's going to be a stream. So please tune in. Yes, we that's will. amazing. Oh, we will definitely be promoing so the excited. heck out of that. Yes. Yay. And congratulations. I mean, that's a huge milestone. And, and yeah. you know. How incredible. Thank you. Yeah, I can't I can't believe it. I, I mean, even I can't tell you, I mean, w- rehearsing the learning the music like it's it's been so emotional because I've just never seen anything in a vocal score that that comes close to my experience in the world. So it's it's 
really an amazing project that I'm so thrilled about. Yay! Well, and you're also an incredible performer. We've been sending videos back and forth of you singing. Oh my gosh, thank oh, you. Oh, yeah. Literally before this, like yesterday, I texted Jesse. So, you know, if you don't haven't already heard Tracy sing, go to her website, thetracycox.com, and click on her little, like, listen. And it's going to take you to this, like, just stunning performance of Visidarte, right? Yeah. Yes. And I was, like, I got chills. I, like, immediately texted it to Jesse, and I was, like, we're literally having her on the podcast. Can we just, like, talk about that for a second? <laughs> like, what is even happening? So oh if you like hearing Tracy speak, go listen to her sing, and you will be equally blown away. Y'all are the best. well tracy thank you so much for joining us um taking the time to just you know share your life experience and your advice and your wisdom with our listeners and with us thank you what a pleasure and um you guys give me so much hope for just the direction that we're all headed in so thank you for the work you do it's it's amazing thank you thank you Awesome. Thank you guys so much for joining us on another episode of Opera Offstage. If you're not already, join our community on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You can find us at Opera Offstage. Um, We recently released uh, a lot of workbooks, a lot of different stuff to download and check out to get you organized for this audition season. So check out our website, opera-offstage.com for lots of helpful resources. And you can also check out our YouTube channel, um, also under Opera Offstage, for some good laughs. We will see you guys next time. Bye! Bye!